0: Pastor Hovedy. Thank you. Welcome again. I see a couple new faces again, so if you are here visiting us, I welcome you. Um, If you're someone coming back that hasn't been here since I've been here, I welcome you as well. So, look forward to meeting you. Um, We're in a series of sermons from the book of Habakkuk, which... I had pointed out to me that some people pronounce Habakkuk. And so I looked into it a little bit. And in the Hebrew, if you were getting an actual perfect uh, pronunciation, the B actually sounds like a V. Did you know that? It's actually Havakuk. So, Havakuk. You have a kook for a pastor, so Havakuk. Okay. So. I'm going to go with whatever I end up saying. So all right. So we talked about we looked, we're looking in the first two chapters. It's only three chapters total. Uh, we're going to finish chapter two this morning, Lord willing. And uh, Habakkuk or Habakkuk is having a conversation with God that's recorded here for us. First, he has a complaint. The complaint is how long. He's tired of seeing iniquity. He's tired of seeing destruction and violence and strife and contention. And so he feels that God is letting things slide, that he's allowing his people to sin without any consequences. Habakkuk wants to see God deal with the sin of his people and certainly we can identify with this, can't we? Perhaps you've seen sin even in God's church and wondered how he lets it go on like that. Or maybe in your own family, you see family members that are sinning and even seeming to flout it how, how do they have the nerve, first of all, but also how does God just not immediately strike them down? And then sometimes we would be reminded that if God was in the striking down business of everyone who sinned immediately, none of us would be here, right? But that's how Habakkuk felt. He saw people all around him sinning, and he was indignant over it. And so he said, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? So God gives to him an answer, God's answer is, just wait and see. I am going to raise up the Chaldeans. And if it helps you to put parentheses after Chaldeans and put Babylonians, that's the same people we're talking about. And you may hear me during the message interchanging them. They're the same people. So he's going to raise up the Chaldeans, he's telling Habakkuk. They're vicious. They have no mercy. They drag people away from their homes. They enslave them. They treat people like property, like animals. They're proud. They laugh at kings. They think they can conquer any people. These Chaldeans, these brutal ones, God says Habakkuk, are going to be my instrument of judgment on Israel for all the sin you've been complaining about. And then Habakkuk replies, now just wait one stinking minute here. He says, that's not right. How could you use an evil people like the Chaldeans to punish Israel. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent while the wicked swallows up the more man more righteous than he? Is what, what he says. Because these are the worst kind of pagans. They drag people like fish from a net. They rejoice when they capture people just as a hunter or a fisherman would rejoice and brag about his catch. Are you going to let these people continue the way they have I know I complained about Israel, he says, but in this, this is way worse. I mean, come on. And the Lord answers Habakkuk a second time. And he says, Habakkuk, my justice will come to the Chaldeans as well. And I want you to write this down. My judgment is surely coming to Babylon, the Chaldeans. My justice may seem delayed by you, but my timing is perfect. The Chaldeans live according to their arrogance. They trust in their own strengths, but the righteous shall live by faith. Now we get to today's reading where we see the woes. You don't hear the word woe all that much today. It's not woe like you would try to slow down a horse. It isn't woe like, that's cool. No, this is woe like, woe is me. A biblical woe is a warning, a punishment. So let us look at the woes that the Lord tells Habakkuk to record about the Chaldeans. And we'll start in verse 6 of chapter 2. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who make you tremble? Then you will be a spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is, not from, is it not from the horde of hosts that people labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol? When its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts trusted its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. When we started out at verse 6 it started out talking about those who will take up a taunt against him. Well who are all these? All these shall take up their taunt against him. All these there refers to the nations. All the nations that Babylon had been assaulting and taking over they would take up a taunt song against him. Him as the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And what is a taunt song? Well this is what just what it sounds like, you know, it's, it's mocking, it's sneering, in a sense a song that is intended to insult and to cause the one who's, who the song is aimed at to get rattled or to feel offended. You know, it's like sports to each other, right? If your team wins, do you ever just say we won? No, we destroyed them. We kicked them up and down the field. Or where's that fancy quarterback you were bragging about? Huh? He could hardly throw. Where's that unbeatable defense? No one could get through. A bunch of 6th graders could have done better. Right? Now, that's kind of like a taunt, right? And imagine the taunt school at a schoolyard. A guy that's the undefeated bully. He's been bullying everybody for years. He ruins the day of every student. No one has ever dared challenge him, and suddenly a new kid comes, and he's not putting up with that bully. So after school, it's arranged, and the new kid goes out and beats the bully. And the bully slinks away, and now all those who have been bullied by that guy are relieved, right? There's relief on two fronts there's the relief that they won't have to be bullied anymore, and there's the relief of knowing that there was some justice at least in store for that bully. Even though for a second, for a time, it seemed like nothing would ever happen to that bully, now you can see that in the end, all was made right. So imagine the taunts of the entire schoolyard towards the bully. Oh, who's the big man on campus now? Oh, is that tears in your eyes that we see? How sad. The taunt song. I think that's pretty clear, right? The Lord is telling Habakkuk that the nations will take up a taunt against the Chaldeans. And here's what they will say. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. This refers to the Chaldeans plundering, stealing what they did not earn. And for how long? He loads himself with pledges. This means they would get pledges from other nations. Basically a payoff to leave them alone. Protection money. The Chaldeans would say to other nations, Hey, nice place you got there. Be ashamed if something happened to it. Out of fear, other nations would pay them off. Hey, I either give them a lot of money or... They're going to come kill me. Verse 7, Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who make you tremble, then you will be a spoil from them. So the tables are going to turn. You made all these nations your debtors, now they're going to rise up and come against you. Verse 8, Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell on them, or in them. There is always a point where people finally get tired, you know, of being mistreated by a tyrant. And sometimes they have to go through a lot of pain to get to that point. But usually there is a breaking point when people realize that they have enough numbers and power to overthrow the bully. They'll organize and even shed blood to see that the bully can harm no one else. And when this happens to Babylon, it will be a result of and a punishment for what they have already done. Verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. Those who gain money and power through illegitimate means always find a need to protect themselves, to be looking over their shoulders. They set their house on a high hill. They're constantly worried that someone's going to come and steal what they stole. Right? How many mo- novels and movies have a plot that involves this master villain who's amassed a great wealth, and what's the great worry all the time? Who's going to come and take it now from me? Verses ten and eleven, you've devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. I found this really interesting as I was reading it, and it, it reminded me of that Edward Edgar Allan Poe story, The Telltale Heart. You know, if you don't know it, I'm going to give away the ending, so it's too late. You should have learned it in literature class. But it's the story of a man guilty of murder. And he's buried the victim beneath the floor, and he continues to hear the heartbeat. At least he imagines that he does. He's tormented. And as he's being interrogated about the missing person, he hears the heartbeat beating again. And he imagines it getting louder. And he thinks the policeman must hear it too. And finally, the pressure of it causes him to confess. And the story ends like this. They heard. Villains, I shrieked, I dissemble no more. I admit the deed, tear up the planks. Here, here is the beating of his hideous heart. Some of you might have read that when you were in high school or something. But you see, evil can't be hidden. The evil one may be able to pretend for a time that all is really good. In the palace of the tyrant, he may have for a time convinced himself that he built it with good acts. Even with kindness. He may think that, hey, as cruel as I am, the people would have been worse off without me. But even the stone will cry out from the wall. The beam from the woodwork respond. The telltale heart. In the end, when all the veneer is removed, the tyrant is revealed to be nothing more than a loathsome creature. Verses 12. Woe woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. You did all of this to build up your great empire, but you built it on blood, you built it on iniquity. Really, in the end, you labored for fire because everything you built will be burned in the end. And what will be left? Only the righteous. The nations wear themselves for nothing. Fifteen, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and the violence of the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. This is very interesting about the drinking, right? That when people do excessive drinking, they tend towards other sins as well. In, uh, in one commentary, it said, The purpose of leading others into drunkenness is pruriently to catch sight of their nakedness. Exhibiting someone in this state was a form of punishment. Inadvertent observation of nakedness and the lack of respectful response to it were strongly dealt with in the case of Noah and his son Ham, where inebriation also played a part. The Babylonians' condemnation is greater since their action was deliberate rather than inadvertent. And from the preacher's commentary series, it said, "...to fully appreciate the deceptive powers of wine... One need only recall that drunkenness was responsible for the downfall of the Babylonian Empire. Daniel 5 records how on the night the empire fell, King Belshazzar sent for the gold and silver goblets of Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and offered toast to the gods of Babylon from those sacred goblets. It was then that the handwriting appeared on the wall and the sudden end to the Babylonians' arrogance came. So this woe is to him who makes his neighbors drink. And it is actually wrath that makes them drink not to drunkenness for the purpose of gazing at their nakedness. Now in the Bible, nakedness does often mean nakedness, but it also uh, can be a euphemism for further than that, for debauchery. We know that excessive drinking often causes people to lose self-control, to be more open to sins they otherwise would not have done. So Often, tyrants would bring the the esteemed people, maybe the government officials, they would bring them in for a party and demand that they drink. They would have these lavish parties, and then the more drunk that people got, then they would bring out other temptations. And after a night of this, the tyrant would now have even more power over those people, wouldn't he? Because now he had seen them act shamefully. He had something over their head, so to speak, right? This still happens today, by the way. There's a reason why you usually don't see presidents and diplomats getting drunk at parties. A wise person avoids that sort of thing, and a more respectable ruler will not demand that others drink. This is from Esther, uh, chapter 1 and verse 8. They're talking about this party that the king was having, and this is a different way to, look, to do it. The, king, the drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. So that was a king that was not forcing people to drink, but letting them to drink if they wanted to. So this woe is to him who makes his neighbors drink in order to embarrass them. But in the end, they will have their fill of shame instead of glory. You forced people to drink from a cup. Now the cup of God's wrath is poured out on you. And just as you served cups that made people drunk drunk to to uncover their nakedness, So God will uncover you and reveal the ugliness of your sin. This is what he's saying to the Babylonians. The violence you've done to Lebanon. And in those days, by the way, Lebanon wasn't a country. It's a region. When you read the word Lebanon in the Bible, it's not the country of Lebanon today. It's a region, which actually included Israel. So Israel's included this. The violence done in in Lebanon will overwhelm you. The weapons of war, the beasts that terrified them, will be destroyed. Because you spilled the blood of man and did violence to the earth, this is going to happen. I want to spend a moment on that violence to the earth phrase. You see, we have a responsibility to take care, as best we are able, of the earth. God gave mankind dominion over the earth in Genesis, and we have a responsibility to take care of it. This doesn't mean we worship the earth, by the way. It doesn't mean that we put nature on a higher level than people. But we ought to take care of it as well as we can. But what always happens in war? The earth is damaged, right? War is devastating to the environment. In many parts of the world, the effects of war are seen in the environment for generations. And so along with the violence towards men, God is also angry with the Chaldeans for violence to the earth as well as to cities. They would destroy cities. Verse 18, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image. A teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent sun, stone, Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Finally, the Chaldeans are going to be judged for idol worship. And this is the ultimate arrogance. Not only do they deny the real God, they make themselves greater than their own gods because these gods are created by them, shaped in metal or carved in wood. If you consider yourself the creator of a god, what does that make you? So the one who makes an idol trusts in his own creation, he makes speechless idols, so woe to him. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? No, it can't teach you anything. A little carved figurine is not going to teach you much. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So this is the end of the woes in Habakkuk chapter 2. You see now that God has made it clear to Habakkuk that he is going to deal with the sin of his own people first and then the sin of the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. And it's interesting that that's often how God does work. He wants to take care of the sin in his own people first. In 1 Peter four seventeen to 19, Peter writes, For it is, this, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Habakkuk wanted judgment to begin in Israel, but the judgment was more than he could handle. He couldn't see how God could use a far worse people to judge Israel. And perhaps we see in our time where God purifies his church by using vicious, evil people from outside the church. I think a fair argument could be made this is already happening in our world. God is judging the church. He's purifying it. Why would he want to do that? Because the church is the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So why would God use vicious people to purify his church? Because he's preparing the church as his own bride. How are we sanctified? We're sanctified through his word, John seventeen seventeen. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. But what if even the saved, even if the people in the church, what if they are resistant to being sanctified by his word? If they're resistant to being sanctified by his word, then perhaps he will purify the church in other ways. You see, Israel had God's commands, but they didn't keep them. God sent them prophets, but they didn't listen. So he allowed violence to come upon them, using the Chaldeans as his instrument of destruction. What will we learn from this? Are we willing to be sanctified by the truth in order that we don't have to be sanctified some other way. Finally, let me mention that as many prophecies in scripture can be fulfilled in more than one ways, these things did happen in Babylon. Well, it must have because you don't hear about Babylon, do you? Who's the king of Babylon today? Are they part of the UN? <laughs> you know? No, they were destroyed. And there is also a passage in Revelation where we see a glimpse of the final judgment of Babylon. And what does Babylon represent in Revelation? The epitome of decadence. A society obsessed with luxury and leisure. Obsessed with idol worship. Obsessed with sexual immorality. And it represents a nation that's the envy of the world where all the merchandise is sent. Where every leader of every country is willing to debase themselves in order to do business with the great Babylon. And what's to become of the great Babylon? I'm going to read for you from Revelation chapter 18, actually the whole chapter. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, "'Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities.'" Pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. Does that sound like Habakkuk a little bit? Okay. She glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, iPads and iPhones, all kinds of scented woods, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep. Horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out. Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more? That the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and all who have been slain on earth. The people of God were called out of Babylon before the destruction. Come out, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. And the kings of the earth will weep and wail. Imagine what would happen if the ports of a great country were closed to business to the whole world. This happened. We have an example of this. When 9-11 happened, all the ports were closed for a while. The worldwide economy nearly collapsed. Imagine a nation so great that if it stopped buying, the entire world would tremble. And in the entire chapter of Revelation 18 that I just read, there's only one word that's what we call an imperative, a command. You know what it is? It's in verse 20. It's the word rejoice. Heaven, saints, apostles, and prophets are commanded to rejoice at the judgment of Babylon and indeed, that's the command that was obeyed in the next chapter. And I'll just read three verses here. After I heard what seemed, after this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke of her goes up forever and ever. Why is there rejoicing over this sort of destruction? Over this punishment? Over this sort of judgment? Because finally by then, we will have a better understanding of the holiness of God. In the end, when we realize that every sin is cosmic treason, and every sin against God is worthy of his wrath. We will rejoice when we see the wicked punished. Perhaps that worries you. Perhaps this is scary news to you. Perhaps you're thinking to yourself even now, but I'm a sinner. I'm guilty of disobedience, of rebellion, of treason against a holy God. You should be worried should bother you to hear of God's judgments because his sword is poised above your head, ready to drop. His hell is prepared for those who sin against him. His judgment will surely come toward all the wicked and all are wicked. There's none righteous, no, not one. This fear of a holy God, this realization that your sin is heaping up his wrath on you ought to make you squirm. It ought to worry you. You ought to be concerned. There is only one way to avoid the wrath of God. Put your faith in Christ. Amen. You see, Babylon in the end will find itself at war with God. And that is a war they will not win. But we do not need to be at war with God. We can be at peace with him. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this peace is because Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God for all who would put faith on him. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's a word in there and I know I've explained at other times but maybe you weren't here, that word propitiation, what in the world people say does that mean? It's a turning away of God's wrath. You remember when Jacob was going to approach Esau and he sent the convoy ahead of him, right, loaded with presents, so, oh my goodness if i if I send all these presents, maybe the wrath of Esau will turn away. That's propitiation. The death of Jesus Christ on the sh- cross turns God's wrath away from those who put faith in him so that you don't have to be part of that end with Babylon. Wouldn't you like to have peace with God? Wouldn't you like to know that in the end, instead of being one on, on whom God's wrath is being poured out, instead you'd be one at that table, one of those shouting hallelujah? May God grant salvation to someone listening today. May God's word through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit bring the dead and sin to life in Christ this morning. May he transform a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. May he get all the glory and the honor for the sake of his son in whom our salvation is sure, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we could look at messages like this and say, oh my. That wrath of God, I don't want to talk about it. Yet, Lord, you have put it in your word for us to talk about, to think about.